If you got a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis 6 today. I hope everybody has been looking forward to this service as much as I have. Uh, we had a great brand new series, brand new study to start today. Uh, but first, I want to give a final word on a conversation we've had for over the last month. Um, we spent the lead up to November talking about what it is like to be under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, to be in his kingdom. Not to wait for it when we die, but to live in it now. Living by his teachings, he campaigned for our hearts, and I hope you've given him yours or renewed your uh, commitment to him. Uh, this past week brought a lot of stress on everybody, and half the country may be pleased, the other half may not. But I don't know where you stand or how you feel, but over the past 12 years, um, as I've come more and more, under, more and more under the rule of Jesus, as the old hymn says, I've been learning to lean more and more on Jesus over and above anybody and anything else. Learning to lean. If you give your heart to Jesus, he's always with you. It's not a one-time thing. He doesn't say thanks and see you later. Or he doesn't say, well, I guess I'm going to give up on you. He always is committed daily and forever. He makes a difference in our life. He's with us and he will never lose us and we'll never lose him. I hope this past month and really every service that we do here, I hope what we do here always encourages you and equips you. I don't just want to make you feel good on Sunday because that feeling will leave. What we do on Sundays is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and just for the life that often brings some difficulty as we commit our lives to Jesus. I hope that this, these services encourage and equip. And, and hopefully, because of our time in worship together, the noise is easy to silence. Your heart can maintain peace and joy that you come to know and only know can be found in Jesus. If you want more of my post-election thoughts, check out Wednesday night's message. I think it will uh, be one I might replay every four years. Um, so check that out. But today, uh, we are going to start something brand new that's going to carry us into the end of the month. It's not a book study like we normally do or through a part of, the, of a book. It's going to be more um, going through some of the, the big narratives in the Scripture that feature some of the key characters, the key historical figures that we know and look to as the fathers and, uh, of our faith. Uh, we're going to be talking about some of these narratives, some of these people um, in, that we have studied about and learned about since we really were in Sunday school, but maybe in a different light and maybe with a fresh perspective and something we can take for our own walk with God. I think we often think that the people that we read about in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, but also new, I think we often think the people that we read about in the narratives in Scripture, we struggle to see them as normal people. Uh, we, we, we look up to them, but we just think, you know what, my experience has never been like theirs. Uh, and in some ways that's true, uh, but we focus on the mountaintops accounts often in the Bible. And, and we know, of course, we all know the, the high peak experiences, the Red Sea, the Battle of Jericho, the David versus Goliath, Elijah on the mountain, Daniel in the lion's den, the miracles of Jesus, of course, the work the disciples did. I think it's often when we, we hear those stories so much and we focus on those stories, it's easy to feel like we're just so different and we're just so lower than them and we're detached from their kind of experience with God and, and, and we think you know what none of those lives are normal and my life's never going to look like theirs you know they used to worship and fire fell down from heaven I mean they used to get locked up in prison and the walls would shake and they'd walk out uh, you know they used to people were buried and considered dead and they walked out of the grave I mean you know we, we just don't see our lives as ever being like theirs and, and we read them sometimes and we've heard them since we were kids and we were you know read them at, uh, people read, read them to us at bedtime you know they're like fairy tales in some ways to us uh, too good to be true uh, and you know growing up 
we often only really heard these big major stories in the Bible. But if we just took out, if you took out all those overwhelmingly, seemingly impossible to believe events, you know, they don't make up but just a few pages of the Bible. Not to underscore or undermine God's power, I'm just saying there's way more to the Bible than those experiences that we love to hear about but often intimidate us because we don't ever think we're going to get to do what they did, and, and we probably won't because the, those, a lot of those miracles were to Israel and the way God was showing himself to the world. But what I want to make known to us today, and, and hopefully this will encourage us all, that the Bible tells a bigger story. The Bible tells a story of men and women who were no different than us. They faced oppression, they faced obstacles, they faced challenges and conflict, yet they were able to find hope and help in their God. That's what made them different. It contains sermons and teachings from God's messengers whose words lifted their spirits and changed their lives. And, and for many of us, for many of us and in many churches, we only ever hear about the spectacle. We only ever hear about the ooh and the ah and the wow. And for that reason, we feel detached and distanced from the reality of this book being a book that really gives us something practical for every day that can change our lives and that can help us, can help us see that in the mundane and in the ordinary, God can step in and God can enter in and he can work the miraculous and the extraordinary. But I hope by finding ourselves in these stories, we might be able to see how God can make that same connection in our lives. So I think it would be good to talk about some of the less glamorous events of the scripture, some of the stories that remind us that the heroes in the paradises of old were just as prone to trouble as we are and as our world still is. They weren't always in power. They weren't always full of power. They also were never perfect. If you think for God to work in your life, you've got to be perfect, then this book would be filled with disappointment. It would be, you would get to the, the story of Jesus and it would be great. And then after he was gone, it would be bad again because nobody is able to reach that level of perfection. Our heroes in the Bible, our heroes in the stories of the Bible, they were never perfect, not at all, but they were God's people. And just like we can be and like we are God's people, they were godly and they were genuinely good people striving to be servants, sons, and daughters of God. But I know how it is in this world, and we're going to see in their own efforts to follow and serve the Lord. No matter how hard we try, and no matter how well our intentions all are, we still find ways to fall, don't we? Even when we were or actively trying to avoid those pitfalls, we still stumble into them, don't we? Now, speaking of falling, I'm talking about real falling. Who in here has fell before? Now, before you raise your hand, I'm talking you, maybe you slipped and fell, or maybe you had this you know, spectacular falling off a house experience. Who's fell before? Don't be, don't be ashamed. We're all, see, we're all fallers. We've all fallen. I'm waiting until you hear my story. I have fallen a lot in my life. I, I was making some one last pass through my notes this morning. I realized I left off one of my fall experiences. Some of you have seen me fall. And if you saw me fall, just know that it wasn't that one time that I fell. I've fallen a lot more. Um, I've fallen downstairs, all of them. I've fallen uh, out of bed, um, which that's not that bad. Um, I've uh, fallen off of a box blade trying to weigh it down to scrape gravel. That was never a good idea, but I fell off of one, um, and uh, that kind of hurt. I fell down some more stairs. I fell onto gravel, onto concrete. I fell off a bike. That was an embarrassing experience that some of y'all saw. But oddly enough, I I've, I've fallen down a whole flight of stairs. One time I fell down a, I've, like more than once. I've fallen down a whole flight of stairs a couple times, and I wasn't hurt a bit after any of those 
complete falls. But then another time, I was at the bottom of those same stairs, and I fell off the last step, and I broke my foot. Isn't it funny how that works? Um, I fell off, you know, I went way down. I, I used to wake my family up at night because I would just go tumbling down the stairs because I would try to, I don't know, if I had slick socks on. I don't know what the deal was. I should have had the grippy ones. That probably would help, wouldn't it? Um, but I've fallen downstairs at my uh, home. Uh, that uh, and I, I avoid the stairs now because I probably would fall again. Um, but uh, I, again, I told you I lost tr- uh, balance on a tractor one time, and I not, was knocked out on the gravel. I remember being drugged onto the to the to the garage next to it. Um, then on the other hand. I was slowly running to first base in sixth grade, uh, and I fell so gracefully. I mean, it really wasn't a bad fall, um, but then I couldn't walk for six years. So, I mean, I've had falls where you think, man, that's going to hurt nothing, and then falls where you think, well, that couldn't have hurt anybody, and it really um, hurt, um, hurt a lot. But, uh, you know, falls are funny. Not, you know, not ha-ha funny, but like weird. You know, you can't really know what's going to happen when you fall. Um, but as a falling expert... Um, why, I, you know, I wanted to study physics to kind of get to the bottom of why I fall so much, and, and, and I did learn a little bit, but I've learned this about fall damage. Fall damage is not really based on the fall. It's not really based on what kind of fall you have or what really you hit or what really you land on. It's based on how you land. It's based on if you land the right way, you can minimize the damage. But if you land the wrong way, on even the softest of surfaces, you could be in big trouble. I mentioned I fell on a softball field, which is, you know, just normal, like, sand, you know, that they use on baseball fields. Um, and that fall, I tore some ligaments in my leg and, and, and did some stuff to my knee that kept me from walking for a long time. And, and, and I want to make clear I'm walking today because of, of God's healing power, but my knee is not without some wear and tear. It's just, it's very loose. Can't really describe it unless you have a loose knee, which you don't want one. But unless you have a loose knee, you really don't know what it's like to not have, what it's like to have one. My left kneecap kind of does all these weird things. I was going to show you a demo with this slinky back here, but I thought that might make some people kind of eked out. Um, so just imagine that instead of only bending one way, mine bends two ways. Uh, so um, it's not that, not that good. But nonetheless, I can still walk. I just fall over sometimes. You can ask Lindsay, it just happens. But sometimes my leg gives out. Sometimes, you know, I, I just land on it a weird way. Sometimes I've sat down too long and my body's not, I guess my knee's not ready for 100 and whatever pounds. But nonetheless, I fall a lot. I may not look clumsy on the outside, but based on my physics uh, research, um, I either have a higher center of gravity or I've got some unstable equilibrium or maybe it's something much worse. I don't know, but I fall nonetheless. Uh, now, usually when we talk about the word fall in church, it's not unless you have a, f- a pastor who's basically a fainting goat like me. Usually when you mention fall in church, it's not from literally falling. It's from the religious context of falling, right? Um, It's from the idea of making mistakes, failing, the idea of sinning, right? We use that word fall to describe um, doing the wrong thing and stumbling from where we want to be in life. And, and, And maybe you've wondered before, maybe you haven't, but have you ever wondered why the word fall um, and fallen is used to describe our mistakes in our world. Well, one single verse really set the standard for this conversation. One single verse it became so powerful in the early church that this word fall became really the go-to way to describe our condition before God and our condition as sinners in this world. And, and, and this one verse became so prominent in Christianity that it defines this entire conversation. And y'all know this verse, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that little word there, the fall, used in that one verse, is really what 
it's grown out to be the, the standard for talking about the condition of humanity, our sinful condition, our fallen condition. But notice it does not say all have failed. It says all have fallen short. As in, we've never even approached God's standard. We've never gotten close. We didn't take a test and fail. We are fallen by nature. Does that make sense? We didn't reach some point in our life where God said, you're missing the mark. We were born with this fallen nature. It's natural, therefore, for us to fall. But, but here's the good news. And I want to go ahead and just tell you the good news up front without wait, making you wait to the end. The good news is we may have fallen short of God's glory, but we have not fallen out of God's grace. We may continue to fall short of God's glory, but there is nothing we can do that causes us to fall out of God's grace. If there's one statement, I think, that summarizes the stories we find in Scripture, it's this one. We find story after story of people, real people from history, who always fell short. And some fell often. And some fell again and again and again doing the same thing. But the redemption thread through all of them from beginning to end is that God's grace was always greater than their sin. Even though humanity fell early and often, even out of the gate, which is why we call the first major event in history the fall, the entire idea that it wasn't the first and last major event speaks of God's grace. Is, is that not true? The entire idea that there wasn't a fall and then there wasn't the end that shows us that God is gracious, God is merciful on this world. All of our heroes of Scripture are at best fallen heroes. They achieve highs and do good things, but even as good people, they still find ways to do bad things. And that gives me hope. It should give you hope, and I think we'll find plenty of hope today and, and going forward as we study some of the most famous people who did some of the most amazing things, but still were no different than all of us. And let me be clear ahead of this, if I haven't already. Our hope is not in, it should say, our hope is not in our ability to redo, undo, or outdo. Our hope is not in our ability to redo something we did wrong, undo something we did wrong, or outdo some wrong with something better. That is not where our hope is in. Our hope is in God's ability and God's willingness to see through and to see past all of that. He sees past our sin. While we remain fallen on our own, by His grace, we can be raised up. And in our study, and our story is going to begin in Genesis, which is usually a good place to start. Uh, of course, in the beginning, God created our universe, our galaxy, our solar system, and of course, then He created our world. The story of Genesis focuses on just our planet. We don't get much information about the rest of the universe, but over a week-long period, we're told that God perfects this planet. One out of billions, uh, he makes Earth his, the home for his choice creation. In his image, after his own heart, he makes people. He makes his most chosen creatures who would be God-like. He makes people, of course, the story goes to Adam and Eve, rebel in the fall happens. Apparently, Adam was almost like a blank slate for humanity. In him, the rest of our species, the rest of the species was resting. He could choose to serve God or rebel, and with his choice or of rebellion, the entire human race fell in and with him. And this is something so important for us to understand. I think we just go past this so quickly. The genetic code, his DNA, was altered 
by his fall. He was so wired to be in step with God that when he sinned, his genetic code changed. Because God's intelligent design and intent was such that humanity's relationship with its creator is, was and is so vital that when Adam chose to rebel, something at the core of our being was lost. Do you hear that? That when Adam sinned, something at the core of his DNA was altered, it was disconnected, it was damaged, like a glitch in the computer. It, one single flaw spread to the whole system and shut it down. It so damaged humanity that it caused every descendant of Adam to be born in this disconnected, this incomplete, we call it lost state. Because when Adam sinned, when the first man sinned, something was lost that spread to all of us. From where Adam could have been, humanity had fallen, the world would people would be born fallen from there the story goes that when there were just four people one of them murdered the other in jealousy and in self-righteousness people began to mock the idea of a creator to whom they were accountable a civilization began and the world began to feel God looked down and wondered if things were just getting too out of control he finds a rather bleak scene or we find a rather bleak scene in Genesis chapter 6, and I want to read to you the first seven verses. You've heard these before, but just try to put yourself in the mindset of what God was observing. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit will not always strive with man, for he is indeed flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So God put a time, a, a, God put a, a, an expiration date on this generation. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man, pl plural, all people. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Have you ever written a sentence that people said was really wordy? That's a wordy sentence. I mean, that's going out of your way to make it very clear that something was wrong with humanity. Only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry. Notice he wasn't angry. He was sorry. His heart was broken that he had made men on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. I want to zoom in on verse 5 again. All people, every heart, only evil, only sinful. Can you imagine that? And God's response it wasn't that he regretted it, verse 6. He wasn't regretful. He was made to feel sorrowful. He was grieved. His heart was broken. He had attached himself to people. He found his fulfillment in people, a choice he made. And when he lost that, he was broken. He was dejected. And we can't imagine God ever being so invested in something that he would feel that way, can we? Yet he was, as the scripture says, he was sorrowful that his creation was causing so much pain and so much damage and causing the opposite of what he intended. 
His grand idea had been proven, had pro- proven to be a bust. Now, just a sidebar. Think about this. Imagine you're God. Man, I don't know about what, where our minds will go with that, right? But imagine you're God. And you make this awesome universe, and you orchestrate everything through this one particular galaxy in the corner of the universe, and you make sure everything is working so that that galaxy can obtain and inhabit something special. And in the corner of that galaxy, there's a solar system. And in that solar system, God works everything so that that single system can sustain what he's about to do. And in that system, one little planet and one little Goldilocks zone is where it's just right. Where this one planet could be covered with this one single rare, one-of-a-kind substance that could sustain and support life. Imagine you're God and you do all of that. And this is how it works out. And we don't think that big, do we? I mean, in the beginning, and we don't know what was going on eternity past, but this is, in the best way we can ever imagine, what our universe looks like. I mean, it just looks like just bright, bright spots and colors, but that is the vastness of the universe filled with millions of galaxies. If we just zoom into one spot, we see hundreds and hundreds of thousands of galaxies. And if you zoom in closer, you'll find the Milky Way galaxy, which is a spiral galaxy filled with millions of solar systems. And there, tucked away, is a single solar system. Again, God created all of this, and he bent everything to work just right so that this one solar system might be able to be the perfect place for his one creation. Can you imagine this? So then, in that single solar system surrounding our sun, there would be a single planet, a single planet called Earth. Nowhere else could life even be possible. All the elements, all the laws of physics and biology bend toward this one planet so that this substance could be in motion and the necessary sequences to enable and sustain life could be operating as God intended it. Now, what do you think that one substance is that is necessary for life? Sorry. (laughs) Water, right? In the beginning, Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We don't ever pay attention to how big that is. That right there at the very beginning, we're told that God did everything that we just looked at in those slides of those pictures. Everything was made so that water could cover the earth. And from that deep, he would build and create you and me. If only we knew what God did just to make water a possibility. NASA is obsessed with trying to find some semblance of water on some planet. But over and over again, it comes down to this one reality. The earth, somehow, someway, of all the billions of planets, is the only place where there's enough of this to make life possible. I mean, think about this. We worry... We worry over how we're going to make it through some days. It's easy to forget the miracle that was required to make the day. And every time you hold a glass of water, maybe you can remember the miracle of life. The miracle of how we were 
given this home and how our lives are sustained, the entire universe, billions of components can cooperating to make this possible on our little planet, everything else should just be baby steps for us compared to comprehending that. Okay, back to the point. After doing all of this, for all of us, God is heartbroken. It really speaks to how broken and fallen creation was and how wired his heart was to it, doesn't it? I mean, you could th- somebody could whisper in God's ear, says, God, just start over. I mean, just get rid of the place. I mean, you're God. Yet even in his disappointment, disappointment and judgment, God's loving heart was bigger than the heat of his anger and the disappointment of his sorrow. Verse 8 tells us that God's redemption plan would not be put off. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found grace. So everything was a total failure. The world was a disappointment. Nothing was going right. But Noah found grace in God's eyes. Now, we don't know, was Noah looking for God or was God just looking down and decided to pick this guy? We don't know. But here's what we do know. Noah was just as fallen as everybody else. Grace showed him a way to be raised up. To be clear, grace was the only way for anybody to get out of this mess. Otherwise, if we believe verse 5 to be true, if we believe verse 5 to not be hyperbolic, Noah's in that camp too, isn't he? All people, every heart, only evil. I mean, we don't see an asterisk there saying, but there was this one guy. There wasn't nobody. Yet God gave grace to one man. Again, if we do the math, in verse 5, we have every heart only sinful. Verse 8, we we see that Noah finds grace. And then look at verse number 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, a perfect man in his generation. Noah walked with God. So what made Noah a just, justified man? Not his own goodness. Verse 5 says nobody was good. But verse 8 tells us what made the difference. God's grace found him. And God's grace justified him. And this word in Hebrew, the word Hebrew, uh, the word perfect in Hebrew is the word complete, full. Something that was emptied has now been filled. Now, if you look at verse 9, or if you just took verse 9 off the table, you might be tempted to think that Noah's perfection or righteousness was somehow his own doing, his own contrast. But when you see the equation, when you see how the work is shown, we get to verse 9 through God's grace and grace alone. We mentioned earlier when Adam fell, humanity fell with it, but here we have the first sign of reversal and undoing a new beginning, the impossible. What was emptied is filled. What was broken is repaired. What was undone is complete again. Noah was no different than the rest. God's grace justified him. That word justified, anytime you see it in the Bible, it's a legal word. It's a clerical or courtroom kind of word. It's something a judge says over someone on trial. A justification is, hey, I'm the judge. I have the ability to say, 
you're free or you're not free. And by the power vested in me, with the slap of my javelin, I am going to justify you. I am going to give you a credit of righteousness. So Noah was no different than anybody. But the grace of God found him and made him something that he wasn't before. More on that in a little bit. Down in verse 10, we know how this story goes. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 11, the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So we get that emphasis again. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. In verse 17, behold, I will... I am bringing a flood on the earth, floodwaters on the earth, to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which, is, uh, in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives, with you, and of course, a lot of animals as well. Of course, we know how the story will go from here. The earth was flooded, but Noah and his ark would be spared, a remnant for a new world, the living, uh, uh, every living creature given a place on the ark. In light of what we've learned today, I, I don't think it's insignificant that God returns the earth to the way we originally found it in Genesis 1-1, covered in water. Verse 18 and 19 tells us that God made a covenant with Noah, a promise that he would bring salvation to Noah. This water was judgment to everyone but Noah. He was raised up and saved by the ark of salvation. As the waters covered the earth, the boat was lifted up and the boat would spare and save him. As the story goes, God remembers Noah and this with... and. and Later on, after many days of storms and after months and months of waiting for the water to rescind, God brings a wind, the Spirit of God that moved over the waters in Genesis 1. God, with those same bright lights He put in Genesis 1, those lights in that wind dry and drain the flood. The ark comes to a rest on a mountain, and after waiting months and months, Noah begins to send out birds to see if they find a tree to perch on or come back. Over in Genesis 8, verse 6, we see that little part of the story. It came to pass at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark which he made. Then he sent a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out for himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned to the ark to him. For the waters were on the face of the whole earth. He put out his hand and took her and drew her back into the ark to himself." He waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. He waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him. The olive leaf is a sign that a brand new garden was being prepared and made ready for God's people. Finally, after a little more time, God gives Noah a similar commission that you'll be familiar with. In Genesis 1, God told Adam, fill the earth. And here at the end of this chapter, he tells Noah, fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, and you will have dominion over all the creatures I've given you. It's very similar because this is a new beginning. Noah immediately leads his family in worship when they get off the boat, but notice something about God's response down in verse 21. 
The Lord smelled unsoothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although, this is big, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So God tells us that washing the earth, flooding the earth, did not solve the problem. He did all that knowing that sin would not be washed away completely. The same problem would persist, yet this did not fix the problem. It contained it until a later date. Meanwhile, God had set in motion a greater redemption plan. His intent was for Noah to model to his sons and set a precedent which had seemed to be lost on the previous generation. Noah knew, and you could tell the story, he was spared and survived by grace, and he would forever be sustained by grace and grace alone. And that was his story to tell. It may seem odd that Noah's story doesn't end here because it seems like a nice place for it to end. God promises that he will never flood the earth again. He puts a rainbow in the sky. Happily ever after, we should be hearing about Noah's children filling the earth and everything else that would come out from Noah's lineage. But Noah's story doesn't end here. Noah's story has what we call an epilogue. And one more thing. And the reason why I've told you all the previous information is to get us here Most of us, when we think of Noah, we think of the ark, we think of the animals, we think of the rainbow, we think of the promise of God, we think of all the good things. But again, Noah's story has a rather embarrassing one more thing. You see, Noah wouldn't always remember that it was grace that had saved him and grace alone that would keep him from sin. Noah was still human after all. He was still fallen. Maybe that's why the story ends with a brutal reminder of how important it is for us to always remember this about ourselves. In this new earth, Noah plants a garden, which should be familiar because in the old earth, Adam was given a garden. And we know that Adam made a mistake in that garden, didn't he? He took of some fruit that he shouldn't have. And here Noah in the garden with many good things, but also things that would be off limits. Moderation was a key. It's something that we've always struggled with as people though, isn't it? We just can't help ourselves, it seems. As much as God makes a way for us to take the higher road, we always seem to find a lower path. So Noah's story comes to a weird end down in verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan, which is important to know. These are, there were three sons of Noah, and from, they, from these the whole earth was populated. Again, that should be the end of the story. Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard, had a garden. And he drank of the wine, and he was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. Now, what is that that little verse, that little snapshot, what does that remind you of? Noah takes from a certain fruit of a certain vine, and that certain act that he makes uncovers him. It brings out shame. He lay uncovered in his tent. And again, shame, lay uncovered is a symbol of shame. Much like Adam and Eve were uncovered when they sinned. We find Noah uncovered because of his sin from the certain fruit. He was undone by his own actions, a decision he made, yet one that he didn't know or hadn't considered the potential damaging implications. We don't know why he did it, but verse 22 continues, Then Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, 
and told his two brothers outside, and it must have been in a kind of a gossipy kind of way. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away. They did not see their father's nakedness. So I want you to follow this closely. One of Noah's sons saw his father in a humiliating state, and it seems that much like Adam and Eve's eyes were open to their sinful condition, so was Ham's. Japheth and Shem trying to avoid looking to cover their father up. I think they avoided looking more for them than to him because his condition was exposed. Their condition was exposed. And as much as they wanted things to be different when they got off the boat, it was still the same earth. They were still the same sinners. And I think it must have been hard for them to see that just like their ancestor Adam, there lay their father naked and shameful. And I think when they looked at him, or they wanted to look away because they didn't want to be confronted with this same curse that was fighting for their soul. They all knew they were sinners. Perhaps this is a picture of the struggle within every one of us, the struggle, the battle, as we remain fallen. And I think the emphasis here is we must preserve the covering that God has given us. If we cast it off, we will reveal and revel in our sin. It's still there. And it shows up, doesn't it? Much like Adam had sons that went in opposite directions, Noah sees his own children doing the same. They were fallen, prone to cast off grace just as he had. He got a glimpse of the future of how the previous earth conditions would be replicated. But instead of just one righteous man, he saw that his son Shem, through his son Shem, God would form a righteous nation. And from Shem came Abraham, from Abraham would come Israel. And as God had used Noah to show the world righteousness, God would show favor to Israel to make known to the rest of the world that anyone can find favor in his eyes. Canaan, one of Ham's son, would be made an example of as a people who resisted grace. They would be a perennial enemy of Israel. They would be killed off during the days of Joshua. But they were an example of those that resist God's grace and who were replaced in, is, in the land by God's people. In the end, from Israel, of course, comes the church by which God continues to show his favor and only through which God continues to show his favor. And, and I want to show you something. I don't think it's ironic that in Acts, there are three major one-on-one -on -one conversion stories at the beginning of Acts. You see Peter preaching to hundreds of thousands, but then when the story kind of slows down, you see Philip, and then you see um, the Holy Spirit stopping someone, and then you see Peter. You see three major narratives of conversions by three different people, and I want you to notice something. In Acts 8, you have an Ethiopian eunuch from Africa, the descendant of Ham. In Acts 9, you have Saul of Tarsus, a Semite, of Shem become a Christian. In Acts 10, you have, a Cor have Cornelius, the Roman soldier, a descendant of Japheth. You have God showing all three of these descendants of Noah, all three from whom the earth was populated. God shows to every single one of these branches, I can save anybody. My grace is sufficient for anybody from anywhere, anytime. And this is a punctuation on this promise that God made to Noah. Yes, the world's sinful. Yes, the world's fallen. But they could be saved just as Noah had been saved by God's grace. But the example of Noah's failure should remind us something. That we are still fallen and fragile people. 
Noah's repeat of Adam's failure is a snapshot of all of our stories. A constant cycle of having potential, but being exposed and stunted by our weakness. On the surface, Noah's failure is just a bad decision that anybody could make. But when we dig deeper, we see this is one that we're all tempted to make. All of us have made bad decisions. Yet there is redemption for us, as there was for Adam, as there was for Noah. All of us are fallen. All of us have fall, fell. It's in our nature. It's in our blood. Some of us do it more brazenly than others. Some of us do it with awareness but still contrition. Some of us, and sometimes we do it unaware, but we still regret it. And sometimes we just don't realize what we've done, and we don't know what we do after the fact. But the cause is still the same. The greatest problem, I think, in humanity in today's world might not just be the fact that we're sinners, but the fact that we like to rank sins. We like to suppose that we're different based on how we sin, or that some are more sinful or less. That we suppose there is a difference when there isn't. We looked at a verse from Romans earlier. Paul wrote that verse. He was a self-described expert on sin. But if you back up to the verse before that, you get a more full sentence. Paul says in Romans 3.22, There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, every, only, it's still true. But we think there is a difference, don't we? From our perspective, in our minds, we think there's a difference. We see some sins as worse and more offensive. And of course, we have, some have greater ripple effects, which is why we slice and dice humanity. It's why we hear one little detail about somebody and we immediately think, oh, you're one of those. Oh, you've been there. Oh, you go there. Oh, you've done that. I see. But don't you see what this rank and file does? And what's so ironic, we who often quote the Bible so passionately, so woefully forget this verse. And when we do, there's, when we suppose there's a difference, we establish our own righteousness on, on how much more unrighteousness, unrighteous we deem somebody else. This is Satan's greatest deception and temptation for Christians. It causes us to dilute our salvation and derail our mission to share it. When we are convinced that there is a difference, we can become a little judgmental, can't we? The story of Noah reminds us that we all can fall and most likely we all will. But remember, why do we know Noah? If I were to ask you, give me 10 things about Noah, you would not have mentioned the story we just ended with. Because Noah is not famous for his failures. He's famous because of God's favor. Even though Noah wasn't any better than anybody, he wasn't more good. His salvation was by and in his God. Which gives us this incredible reminder. Our good isn't good enough to save us. And on that topic, for that matter, our bad isn't bad enough to undo us completely. God will always be God enough to save us. And that's why Noah is not famous for his failure, even though that's how his story ends. Noah is famous for God's favor, and that's why Noah's story continues in heaven and on earth. Thanks to God's favor, we know that what will only be remembered is what God has said and done, who God says we are, and what we've done for God. Everything else is washed away. All because of the promise of the gospel. All are justified by His grace as a gift 
All have sinned, but all are justified by his grace as a gift though, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation or an atonement by his blood to be received by faith. Do you know how Noah found favor in God's eyes? God got Noah's attention, and Noah looked and Noah believed, and the gospel gets our attention. God has gotten our attention, and when we set our eyes on Jesus, we see God's favor, and God's favor sees us poured out on Calvary, his blood, unlike the blood of Adam and the blood of Noah, was not plagued with sin, but was holy and righteous. And when it was poured out on Calvary's hill, it did a work that the ark could not do. It cured and covered us eternally. And when we see our sin on him and we see his love for us, we find favor in his eyes and he puts grace on our heart. This wasn't meant as a message that really analyzed why Noah would do the thing that he did there at the end. It's not to wonder why he did it or why, he, why we might do the same. It's to remind ourselves that we are bound to do similar things because we're all fallen. We've stumbled, we've messed up, we've failed, we've failed, we've been knocked down, we've missed the mark, whether set by ourselves or for somebody else. But we can all be justified with the gift of Jesus' blood. I love this next part. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, his divine patience, he has passed over our sins. The hope of the gospel is that if we've trusted in Jesus, we aren't defined by our sins, past, present, or future. We aren't defined by being a member of this all, every, only, evil category. If we were, we would be condemned. But we aren't condemned by being members of the fallen club. We are justified as members of the forgiven church of Jesus Christ. We aren't condemned if we're in Christ. We are justified. We are forgiven. Yes, we're fallen. And yes, we're forgetful. But we can be forgiven and freed from shame, guilt, and bondage by the grace of Jesus Christ. Not only forgiving us of what we have done, but enabling us to do better. Remember, fall damage isn't about the fall. It's about how you land. You can land on Jesus today. If you trust him to be your savior, if you have trusted him and landed on him, he is always raising you up and will never stop doing that. Yes, we have all fallen, but you can find grace in the eyes of God today if you just look, if you just believe. You can receive what millions before us have. If you're already a Christian and you know what this favor and this grace is like, you can be renewed by that same grace every single day. You know why? Because God is so, so good. And his love, his love is greater than the anger or sorrow he might feel over any of us. Yes, we've fallen, but by God's grace, we can be raised up. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you something greater than an ark that spared us from judgment has come. 
the saving grace of Jesus Christ, the death on the cross where his perfect and holy blood was poured out for us to cover our sins, to forgive our sins, to disable its power. God, thank you for the story of Noah, a story of a man who wasn't any better than anyone, yet found grace. And even after he got to the new earth, he messed up royally. But you weren't done with him. And you aren't done with anybody in this house today. And if they look into your eyes today, they can see the same grace that sustained Noah, that saved Noah, and that always forgave Noah. Father, I pray you would make your grace felt and known today in this house. And I pray we all could walk away knowing, yes, we're fallen, but knowing that in Christ we've been raised to something better. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.